Uh, it has been a crazy week uh, for politics. Uh, a couple of things uh, besieging the Labor Party. We'll get right into it. We've got our um, youth wing political guests, the full spectrum. Uh, well, not the full spectrum today. Bonnie from Labor is not in here. Uh, she was going to be. Um, I'm not sure if the uh, the whole Claire Curran thing has put them into damage control mode. But uh, we will be uh, discussing that in one moment when we resolve these slight technical difficulties. Hold on a second. Okay, we seem to have sorted that out. So, uh, this week, the first thing is the Claire Curran resignation, uh, or sorry, the Carol Hirschfeld resignation. Some of us wish it would uh, rather be the the Claire Curran resignation. Uh, What exactly uh, went on there? Let's go down the line. Uh, We'll start with National, since they, um, you know, get the, claimed the scalp. What happened here? Why is this a scandal? Look, I I think she lied to... Parliament. She lied to the, her fellow ministers, and um, I just think it just shows that when you scratch at the surface, there's just really a lot of inexperienced people in this government. It's a bit of a shambles, um, and I just think this clearly shows that Claire's not um, like good for the role. What, what was there something sinister here, or was it just inexperience? I think it's just sort of inexperience. She. Um, yeah, that's sort of one of those basic, you just tell the truth and you'll be fine. Yeah. But, um, well, sort of you know, it is Claire Curran we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Will? Are you going to defend the uh, uh, I mean, coalition it was, here? It was a bit dodgy, but she did come out and, like, say that she did speak with her, like, the day after. Like, she, I don't think it was an intentional thing where she was trying to... It was not a big cover-up. It was just... It was a mistake. And she should have... Uh, she, she's owned up. Um, and it's a real shame that Carol's resigned because really great journalist, um, really history, like really good history um, in the media. Um, but yeah, it's not as big a big a deal as I think people are making out. Um, I'm not sure if she should. Re- I don't think she should resign over it. What What do you think, Sam? I mean, is this a scandal, or is are you paying? Have you paid much attention to it? Or? I, I haven't been paying too much attention to it, but it seems like it's just the same as the rest of Parliament. That is slimy politicians being slimy. Yeah. Okay. I I wonder. I mean, I don't understand why Carol Hirschfeld had to lie about it to her boss. Yeah, I that's found, what doesn't make yeah, sense. That was the strangest bit to me as well. Because with yeah. RNZ, they had to, if they were ever going to meet with a, an executive or the minister was ever going to meet with any like senior managers of RNZ, they had to report it to yeah. the executive. And uh, the fact it was never reported, I think um, she felt it must have been an offence that she just had to step down for, which is a real shame. But I don't know. Maybe it's uh, we're just seeing sort of the, from the outside. Maybe there's a lot of stuff going on the inside that we don't know. If, if they're feeling the need to bypass the usual procedure to organise secret meetings, then there's clearly some backdoor operating going on. I don't think it was particularly secret. It was in the middle of Wellington in one of the busiest cafes. It's not like clandestine closed doors. Yeah, but there's there's a difference between being in public and avoiding any trace of it on the official record. I mean. On the on the unofficial record, being visible is different from it being visible in the documents, and it definitely was 
kept from being visible in the documents. Mm. See, I don't know about Claire Curran. I mean, she she seems a bit wishy-washy to me. She's been an MP for a long time. Too long. I originally didn't like her (laughs) because uh, she was... She was sort of uh, the person putting labor on the um, copyright enforcement bandwagon. And when we had the, the three strikes mm-hmm. and they'll cut off your internet, uh, Section 92, labor actually supported that. And that was Claire Curran, again, as this sort of, you know, wearing this arts and culture and broadcasting hat. And I don't think she really deserves that because of that. Uh, more lately, she has kind of come around. She definitely jumped on the medical marijuana bandwagon. And when labor was posturing themselves as, you know, during the election as uh, let's do this with cannabis. Uh, but now we're seeing it's let's not do this. Um, <laughs> let's do a refined like. Claire was on board. She, you know, she didn't get the memo that they weren't really doing anything. And she seemed genuine. And she actually finally took some constituent meetings with some of our people. And, um, yeah, seemed to understand that it was a big economic opportunity so i i don't know i have mixed feelings about her she she came around to the right side on one sort of bellwether issue for me but on the other one she's totally on the wrong side now she's in that position of power and she abused it straight away so i don't know how i feel about that but Mm. that's just my two cents moving on to the next uh thing that i thought was worth bringing up uh and and we've got quite a few issues to cover today um, is the fact that there are no Russian spies in New Zealand. Now, yeah, when I... Ask them, there's none. <laughs> ask all the Russians, they all see they're not spies. So <laughs> take them at arm's length. Must well, be true. Well, the first day that this was said on in all the news, it was all said with a straight face. Like, basically, it was just read out as the line, you know, from Jacinda, and there was no sort of critical analysis. Now, in the last two days... Uh, yesterday it was a little bit, and today there's a flood of like yeah. basically you are full of shit. But it took it took a while. There was a lag. Everyone just sort quite, of yeah. like immediately I tweeted out because I was just like collective eye roll. There must have been to any <laughs> thinking person. I don't know why it took so long yeah. to um, notice. This it, is farcical. Yeah. yeah. Uh, That's sort of crazy. Just to ask sort of like the Russian embassy, like, do you have any spies here? They're gonna go. No, <laughs> I just think it's just a, a bit of a joke. We've become an international laughing stock. If you look at all the big players around the world, they've expelled all the Russian diplomats, and we're left with ours. And you've got to think, well, maybe we should follow what everyone else is doing. Maybe we shouldn't be seen as sort of like passively accepting that what Russia's done is okay. Well, I don't know, but I mean, we just because everybody else is jumping off a bridge doesn't mean that we should. But at the same time, I feel bad for all those American spies that we know for sure are here because yeah. the bases are right there. They must be getting really bored if there's no Russian spies. <laughs> They're just like fishing and, you know, going mountain climbing and stuff. That sounds quite nice. Uh, Stargazing. <laughs> uh, I think that's what the Russian spies do too. I think they they all, you know, get drunk with the American spies, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it is a farcical notion that there's no Russian spies in New Zealand, but I, does, I don't think that means that we should necessarily expel them. I mean, uh, yeah. Sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, what uh, my understanding was that the diplomats that have been expelled in the, uh, the various Five Eyes countries have been diplomats with intelligence backgrounds rather than just all of the diplomats. And I think it's... We don't have Russian diplomats. Well, it's interesting that you say that, Will, because sure. on day two, which was yesterday, okay. the, the statement, the statement from the <laughs> government, the statement from the government changed to "There's no Russian spies in New Zealand." To "There's no 
diplomats with active intelligence ties or it was a much more qualified statement yeah, that yeah. kind of was more along the lines of what you were saying so there is a little yeah. wiggle room uh to 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 use weasel words to uh <laughs> to make it sort seem of, like there's no yeah. uh russian spies or whatever um but what do you guys think are the you know the geopolitical implications of this uh Novichok nerve gas attack i mean to me this bears all the hallmarks of a classic false flag because why would Russia, you know, do this in such an obvious way that was going to cause oh, when when they're right teetering on the brink of an international nuclear war, which we've talked about on this show before, um, you know, what what incentive do they have to actually do this? And I, I would like to draw listeners attention to a um, writer. Craig Murray, he's the former UK ambassador to Uzbekistan, uh, and during the uh, Iraq war period uh, in the early to mid-2000s, he kind of fell out of favor with the powers that be because he saw the Uzbek dictatorship uh, boiling opposition dissidents alive as a method of torture, and he reported back to the Foreign Office saying, hey, this is a human rights violation, and they said, well, they're helping us with the war on terrorism, you know, we've got to do it. And he kind of blew the whistle on that and got pushed out. Uh, but he's been very critical of this, um, you know, geopolitical intrigue and the new Cold War sort of dynamic because he saw it unfolding, and he saw these... You know, these same Soviet dictatorships, former Soviet dictatorships that we complain about when they're on the Russian side, uh, you know, doing our bidding in the exact same methodology, using the same assets. Uh, when they're on our side, it's good. Um, and he was saying that the Novichok agent actually is, is quite common. It's old technology. It was developed in the 1980s. There's lots of people who have it now. Um, and basically the language that's being used in these UK, um, you know, forceful statements is that Novichok is of a type developed by Russia. And if you look at all of the, um, you know, the UN resolutions and, and all of this rhetoric, it's all talking about it of a type that Russia has developed. And it's these very, again, vague weasel words that can be interpreted in, in and when the media re-reports them, it's like, oh yeah, Russia's the only people that had that. This is how they do it. Um, the Israeli intelligence is reporting that they believe 20 countries have the Novichok agent, and that's why that they did not expel any of the Russian diplomats. So it's interesting that, um, you know, some, some of our more, you know, hawkish commentators in New Zealand, the ones who would automatically say, well, Jacinda didn't expel the Russian spies, you know, everybody else did. We should be doing that. No offense, Viv. Um, <laughs> that, that, you know, that's kind of, those same people would say, oh, Israel's such a great geopolitical maneuver. We should follow what they do and we should help them. But, but they're doing that same thing. They're hedging and they obviously know something that we don't know. Um, so I do think, you know, I'm not saying kick them out, but how stupid does the government think that the population is in the age of the internet to be like, oh, there's no Russian spies. Russian spies, what are you talking about? Oh, it's funny. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just, I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that, that original play of there is no Russian spies in New Zealand? Now, Jacinda's looking like it's, there's going to be some pressure. They may take some uh, travel restrictions or something. Um, 
what what do you think of that uh the strategy of that original narrative of oh little old new zealand we don't have any russian spies i don't know i i haven't read upon it too much honestly um the stuff i've, I've said the things that i i read um it's certainly concerning um yeah i, I think ultimately the the most interesting part of it isn't new zealand's response to it it's the, it's the as you say the whole geopolitical happening in the first place. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, Salisbury, where it happened, is right next to the place in England where all the chemical weapons are manufactured. Right, Orton Down. Ostentatiously, yeah, right before an election in Russia, right after... So, right before the World Cup, which they've yeah, been right, trying yeah, right to right derail yep. for quite a few years, yes. And, and of I course, mean, Russia's, you know, Putin's just such an evil, shirtless mastermind as, like, a literal Bond villain yeah. that uh, <laughs> it must have been him. It must have yeah, been him. Yeah, this so is a great, makes a great movie. Mm. Um, I think that we should pull the all-whites out of the FIFA World Cup. Yeah. I think it's probably the best movie. They, they, they don't actually make it, but, yeah. but, <laughs> <laughs> but we, could, we could say that we, are, we intended or not. There you go. We don't agree with Russia. So that could be our, our one big sanction. <laughs> <laughs> not our, our time team. to shine. Yeah. Yes. We might make it now if everyone pulls uh, it out. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> oh, it's, it's hard. <laughs> right, right. It'll be us versus Russia, and we'll still get beat. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I agree with what you're saying, Sam. It is the, the wider uh, geopolitical context that is of intense interest. And I find it interesting that, um, you know, we did hear some reports uh, over the past week of this guy who used to live in New Zealand, who was a former Russian spy who said he was fo followed by the SIS and he had powder blown in his face by some homeless man and got sick. And um, so, you know, if there's no Russian spies in New Zealand now, there certainly used to be. And another interesting point that I would draw attention to, long-term listeners will have heard me talk about this guy before, the the former third-in-command of the KGB after the uh, Soviet Union dissolved emigrated to New Zealand. He was head of their biological directive, mm -hmm. so in charge of all of the, yeah, basically biological weapons, nerve agents, incapacitating agents, sort of the zombification drugs, all of those experiments that happened on humans right up through, I mean, basically, the world expert in Novichok when it was created uh, just happens to live in New Zealand and has been a uh, clean water scientist uh, since the 1990s, very high-ranking, uh, went on to work at the Waiwera Water Corporation, uh, which was surprisingly popular among Gulf sheiks and Russian oligarchs for, uh, you know, buying giant cases of bottled water that they knew didn't have any Novichok in it or something. Um, but this guy, Dr. Alexander Kuzmanov, he wrote a book in 2005 about his sort of role in the West, but it was obviously kind of a what they call a limited hangout where, you know, people kind of know enough that you can't keep it under wraps, so you tell a certain amount, but you use that to divert from the really bad stuff that you don't want anybody to know. Um, because that book was allowed to come out. Russian intelligence never attempted to assassinate him. Um, you know, we haven't heard anything about him having powder blown in his face. And, of course, he's been a government consultant uh, in numerous crises and situations, drawing on his expertise and, and his sort of role from, you know, world chief poisoner to New Zealand clean, pure water expert 
just was so, so suspicious, first working at Niwa and then at the Wellington Council and then on to Waiwera with its distinctive customer profile. I mean, if there's no Russian spies in New Zealand, that is just a crazy coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, but there were some other more, you know, less intriguing, more day-to-day uh, -day political, domestic uh, situations happening. Well, actually, it is a bit geopolitical. Um, the occupation of the oil uh, conference. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that, Will. You have a direct line there. Or, I mean, they occupied... I was hearing it on the radio, I guess, yesterday morning. They were blocking the entrances... Uh, what ended up happening there? Did they eventually get through the delegates? And um, yes, yeah, so, so there's the yearly oil conference that's being held in Wellington, and I think it's over three days, and um, it was a Tuesday, um, there was blockades. Um, it actually got really nasty, like, the police were, like, booting people. Yeah, like, like wrenching grandmothers' arms yeah. behind their backs. Yeah, like, there's some really, like, atrocious videos of the police acting in really brutal ways. Um, um, as far as I'm aware, they did get through in the end, because... They did break they, them they up. The police people. broke them up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, uh, a valiant effort anyways. I mean, what do you guys, you pro-oil right-wingers, um, you know, what do you, what do you think I about think that? I think that right <laughs> now we import 80% of the oil that we consume in New Zealand and to say that we're not going to produce any more oil or like petrol in New Zealand that's only taking 20% out we're going to import 100% and if we're producing it in New Zealand you've got to think that we're producing it in a much safer way than people are overseas so when you're coming to like protect the environment or like climate change issues if we can somehow ramp up our domestic um, production of it then that's probably more beneficial for New Zealand because if you look overseas where we get most of our oil from like in uh, Saudi Arabia and Middle East and in Australia, um, you got to wonder how they, what their so environmental record is compared to what we've got here. It's like farm to table. Well, yeah. sure. I mean, Reservoir. farm to table oil. Yeah, I don't know if there's a market for that. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, we're such a small percentage of those dirty countries' um, sort of exports that if we don't buy it, it's not going to send a market signal to them. Um, so I guess, you know, by... I guess maybe ton of carbon per ton of carbon, you know, you would be probably on a global scale maybe more efficient if that tiny infinitesimal fraction of a percent of, of global oil was produced in New Zealand instead of Saudi Arabia or wherever it's coming from. But then the environmental risk to New Zealand would be so magnified that... Um, you know, w would that be worth it? Like, we're saving the world point zero zero, you know, zero something percent and yeah. wrecking New Zealand definitely some, you know, at least two, three, five full integer percentage. I don't know if that's, uh, if that math stacks up. Surely in today's day and age, we should not be ramping up our oil production. <laughs> we should be investing in green tech, in um, electric, uh, electronic vehicles uh, and the like. And I mean, we simply don't have the capacity to deal with an, like, an oil spill in yeah. deep, deep water drilling. Like, we've got like three boats that could clean it up and they're like dinghies, essentially. Like, if there were to be an oil spill on New Zealand, in New Zealand water, it would be an environmental catastrophe. 
remember the astrolab <laughs> thing that happened <laughs> ages ago sort of it does last a long time but mm. like there's been no risk so far of new zealand's sort of oil exploration off or gas exploration off the taranaki coast but yeah obviously in the future we've got to try strive for that um, sort of electric cars. If you look at not in the future, yeah, now. In the future. <laughs> I mean, the, future the, the reality is, we yeah. already invest a hell of a lot of money in green technologies, and there are a hell of a lot of private companies, infinitely more efficient than government spending, <laughs> that are striving yeah. towards the same goal. But you ca you simply can't just get rid of oil. Do you think that all the poor people who rely on their vehicles? to get to work can afford to then go and buy a $100,000 Tesla or a $50,000 like, plug-in Prius or yeah. whatever. That, okay, sorry, so yeah. focusing on electric, electronic vehicles is too narrow. Also, we should be funding public transport, making it cheaper or even free yeah. so that people, poor people don't need to be using oil and their cars to get to well, work. Okay, well look, transport's what? a particular interest of mine. May I quickly talk about transport? <laughs> okay, let's do okay. it, let's do it. So. I mean, this this is the typical Labour Green answer, is just chuck money at trains, chuck money at buses. But the reality is that th that is a hideously inefficient mode of transport. I mean, what? How, how did Elon Musk phrase it? You get picked up somewhere you're not and dropped off somewhere you don't want to go. Having these set routes that exist where nine times out of ten the buses in Dunedin have zero or one or two or three people on them, almost completely empty. What we need to do is start deregulating companies like Uber to step in and fill this market blank. So Dunedin is about to get Uber for the first time. But, but not, not, just, not just on the personal level. I mean, I think companies like Uber will step up, and that's the future of public transport, where the line between public transport and private transport will be blurred, where ultimately there'll just be a fleet of shuttles around, and you'll banging where you are, where you want to go, and the And the workers won't be paid up until such time as there's no workers anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> automation may be the answer, and then we can start talking about UBIs and whatnot. But well, it's interesting when it comes to this um, area, because China signed a deal uh, just uh, last week, uh, one about six days ago, to buy one half of the entire world cobalt supply. Uh, which is a key component of electric vehicles. Um, so, and, you know, it's taken about a week, but just sort of yesterday, there's lots of articles coming out about the, uh, the car industry sort of recognizing this as a strategic threat. Um, so it doesn't matter, you know, what sort of countries traditionally have a big car industry, they're going to have to buy all their future cobalt from China, or at least half of them are. Um, so yeah, it is very geopolitical these mm. energy supplies and uh, peak metals. Saw, like today, Toyota recently they've just announced a whole big revamp of how they're like selling. Yeah, cars. they're not going to pay any yeah. workers. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no one's going to lose their job. Um, but <laughs> the um, yeah, so Toyota now you can just choose it all online, and they're yeah. really trying to push the electric cars. Yeah, so obviously it's their interest, and I think that's sort of well. You know, there's not there's not going to be Toyota dealerships anymore. Yeah, basically, be, yeah. You, the, you so order that's car very online, interesting. They'll send it from either Christchurch, Wellington, or Auckland to your town. You'll go in, drive it around, and go. Yep, I like this. Then you can buy it, or you can go make some other minor changes. It's yeah. sort of like a very efficient way of doing it. And I think the fact that they are pushing electric cars and pushing 
that now and starting today with that announcement is, is quite encouraging. Nobody's yeah. going to shed a tear for car dealers. I mean, basically, <laughs> like, them they, getting they their, getting their margin, cars, car dealers getting their margin is not a uh, sympathetic vote winner, so <laughs> win, win for Toyota there. Yeah. Uh, what Was there anything else you wanted to say about Transport, Sam, about, um, you know, these loony Short green ideas? <laughs> well, well, basically, I, I just think that the most, the truly most environmentally efficient way is to let the markets step in and and to let private companies come up with solutions to these instead to these problems instead of just a bunch of idiots in the council houses going all right we're going to this is the solution to the problem that everyone will have to be using from now on instead of a, a solution being dictated allow a solution to evolve and the natural incentives to use as little fuel etc as possible to minimize costs and the incentive to draw people towards the service will naturally lead to a more efficient service which provides a better experience for the people using it speaking of controversy where are you guys all at on the cycleways they're they're sort of in there now we can see what they look like Let's go down the line on the reaction to I, the separated cycleways. I really like cycleways. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy yeah. cycling. I enjoy cycleways. What do you think of these but ones? The ones they've done, I find really annoying. I think the easiest way to build a cycleway, you see it in Europe, is if you just make the footpath wider, put a little kink in it, and draw a line down the middle, then you've got a footpath and a cycleway. For some reason here, we're putting the cycleway on the other side of the car parks and cars sort of work around them it's sort of they've made it really difficult when it should just it be is, really simple it is strange but yeah, yeah i think cycleways and as an idea are great yeah. but the way they've done it here is, is really bizarre like <laughs> they the way they had it before was kind of okay and now they've decided we're going to put these islands in we're going to make it like this this and the next thing and you go but you don't really need that it could be a lot simpler yeah. uh, it's for the cyclist safety because yeah. new zealanders aren't great drivers doors um, swinging open yeah. is terrible yeah so it, yeah. it's protection it's an odd way to do it but i definitely yeah. get it yeah and I, yeah love cycleways love them love them hate them yeah. sam oh I'm, I, I like cycleways I what about these, these ones, ones are, are fucking atrocious <laughs> though, yeah I've, I've, since they've been okay, <laughs> listen, yeah. my, let loose, let loose. Qualms, <laughs> so since they've been installed, I've seen two cyclists go like ass overhead, really, into either into the bollards or into pedestrians, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah because I mean, what, Those, like, what a stupid yeah. design as well. Just all these misshapen, randomly sized <laughs> obstacle course. Like, exactly. And they didn't I tell thought, anyone like what they were for. They yeah. were just we were all just was, confused. So yeah. Walking down the street, like cyclist hits one, head over heels, blood streaming down his face, crowd of like it's just it's so ridiculous that they're sporadically sized like that. They're, and then so there's that factor. There's the factor that stepping out of the car stepping out of the car when you when you park it you're used to stepping out onto the footpath so it is there is quite a natural sort of just step out onto the cycleway kind of thing not to mention they've eradicated effectively sort of four to six blocks worth of parking without providing any alternative and so people driving to university find themselves significantly more plumb out of luck if they're looking for a park. I mean, I, I think we had it pretty good. We had dedicated, decent, sort of metre and a half cycleways on the outside of the car parking lanes, which 
Sure, there's the danger of being doored, which they haven't fully eradicated, but also the freedom of cyclists to actually swerve to avoid obstacles. Whereas at the moment, I was reading mm. an article talking about how there's, there's just no way... It's very, very narrow. That's my big complaint. Yeah. Is like In some of those places where they have caved to people like Sam and preserved the parking <laughs> the, and, and still included the safety protection of a big concrete bollard, there's basically no room for a single cyclist, let alone two. So people are backing up now behind each other, and yeah. it's real annoying. And then if a pedestrian, mm. as you say, walks out, it's either hit the curb, hit the bollard, or hit yeah. the pedestrian. Yeah. I mean, um, just on Monday, a friend of mine from the lab, he was cycling down the cycleway at about 40 k's, he reckons. A bunch of p- pedestrians just walk out without the right of Students way. say Students it, yeah. <laughs> all, all, all first year. Uh, <laughs> all first year. He pulls out, slams his brake on, and just bowls a bunch of them over. Because Damn. he was unable to swerve because he was being funneled directly into them. So Right, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, interesting. It's a pretty appalling design, if you ask me. Well, yeah. I, but four I, cycle ways, I'm four I, cycle. I have yet to actually uh, ride them end-to-end, so I'll reserve judgment until that. We'll take a little break and hear some songs, and when we come back, we've got a few more. And uh, we got a little bit of time left to discuss uh, two remaining topics, uh, the first of which is Julianne Genter's uh, apparent... Uh, I don't know, what would you call it, Viv? Uh, I'd call it a racist and sexist remark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... Oh. What she she made a comment about um, obviously there's too many old white men on boards and that's kind of a fact unfortunately yeah. and the best way around it is to not get rid of them which is what was kind of implied Execute by the media yeah. like get rid of them all um, it wasn't get rid of mass, it was mass grave. Just, to step yeah, back yeah. to so, recognise that there's a systemic issue and yeah. do something about it because what we're saying is the best way to do that would be to empower women to get to those positions but yeah I don't know it sort of a, it sort of came across very badly in the media but. What, that was was it a media beat up well or what? Totally. I think uh-huh. people um, have this perception that New Zealand is a meritocracy, but it's not a meritocracy. There are, there are systemic barriers. Yeah, look at the people um, that are at the top. They have very little merit in some cases. So. <laughs> um, but the systemic barriers for women um, in the workplace, um, you know, they're the number one labourers in unpaid work. They, as, as we said, um, well, as Julianne Genta said, uh, 85% of board members um, throughout New Zealand are male. So we need to recognise that there's an issue and actually do something about it. And if part of doing something about it is to say, you know, maybe people in on boards need to step back and try and let women fill the role or whoever fill the role, um, then that's something we should be saying. Well, it's interesting that Julianne brings up that affirmative action mentality because... Uh, it's about to work against her in the uh, female co-leadership stakes. Uh, what's oh, who knows who's going to win at this yeah. point? It's, yeah, it's, uh, between Marama and Jag, and there's no. Clue you you attended the speeches on Monday. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I, I can't really. It was well, very, no, was the public wholesome. part. Tell us about the public part because there wasn't public part. There no, was. No. It was advertised. Like it said, they were giving speeches, and then there was a part where you guys would get to ask questions, and that was private. Oh, okay. Um, well, it was all just. It was very wholesome, honestly. They both. They both started off. They were like, "Now, for, this is the last day of uh, of the debates and the election." And they're like, "I would just first like to thank my good friend and associate Marama or Jag." And it was, it was just very. It was very nice. But they were talking shit behind the scenes, right? No, no. no uh, they're, they're, well, uh, maybe. Who knows? Uh, um, but I think they've both Twitter. got really good yeah, um, 
they both got really good plans for the Green Party, and they both got good directions. And it's What's just, the difference? Is there any difference? I think Marima has more of an activist route. Um, she's wanting to reach out to um, people who are currently disenfranchised from politics because it's really important to reach out to them and give them a voice. Um, and Jag wants to do the same, but also has a slightly greater focus on... Corporate business. No, no not at all. Like sustainability. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, so she cares about environment more than people. No, she cares about them both. I think it's important to recognise that the issues we have in New Zealand and around the world are... Uh, around social and environment are conjoined. It's the exploitation of the environment and labour for those in power, those with so is there, of is there a we need to change that system. Is there a distinguishing difference that members can make their decisions on other than how it's going to look in the media or what type of person we think we want to have the Green Party appear to be co-led by? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's, it's very personal, like, who you prefer as the candidate. It's You've yeah. got to get to know them. Yeah, yeah. I think they, yeah, they're both wonderful people, and they both deserve the co-leadership. Right? Thought, Sam, is Jag's affirmative action going to come back to bite her? Well, look, I mean, to be honest, it's it's exactly the same kind of recipe that all the lefties bang on about. Just notice a trend, find a group of people who's not doing as well, blame the people who are doing better, make it the responsibility of the people who are doing better to pick up the others' slack, basically. I mean, I... I it's not slack. Well, okay, can, can you give me any actual evidence for systemic barriers to women getting into boards? There are, there are a ton of... Well, I'm not sure about the boards, but there's a because ton of studies that show that there are barriers for women. I, look, I, I would say there's probably barriers in the form of... Um, just the pervasive sexism, you yeah, know, like if I you're getting ogled like or yeah. someone's... Yeah, I don't think there's structural barriers, but if you don't like having your ass grabbed and then you complain about it, then maybe you don't get the job. I don't know. I This is... Obviously, that's a broad generalization, but I think that's probably... That type of paradigm operating has probably been responsible what's led to this imbalanced trend that we know is a fact now, whether or not there's, um, you know... Structural barriers, yeah, yeah things sorry, on structural paper. Structural barriers, it's, it's like our culture. Like, um, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. our culture. Um, yeah. And it, it comes back like to like thousands of years of like entrenched institutionalized sexism. And while women have the vote now um, and are supposedly equal in our society, there, there is that legacy that remains, and we need to do something about it. Yes, well, I think Julianne, um, you know, does need to... Yeah, I guess maybe I would be interested to know what the main point of difference that they're selling themselves on are. Um and if, you know, if it really is about um people from less represented uh groups getting a leg up and being elevated to positions ahead of other people who are more represented, she should probably step back from the co-leadership stakes. I don't know. Um but I don't, I don't agree with that. I think she's the more qualified candidate. I think it should be a meritocracy, so that the you know the smartest, most capable people should do the job regardless of their gender or skin color. Um, but you know, I don't think that those cultural you know barriers should be in place either. We we can have both. Um, we can call out the structural, cultural impediments where they exist, but we don't have to 
throw the baby out with the bathwater and appoint people who aren't qualified to make up for years of injustice, that's only going to make things worse. Unfortunately, that seems to be the default response to it, is to start having uh, gender quotas and start hiring people based on what their genitals are rather than what they can actually contribute. And I think that when, when, when discussions about being appointed to positions about, uh, it, I mean, take the RMA, for instance, about uh, government decisions or council we decisions. We haven't heard about the RMA in weeks, man. Just all these things, all these sorts of... When, whenever a legal or corporate process is being undergone, the identity of the people should not be taken into account. It's about the... The merit of the argument. The merit yes. of the argument, the merit of what you're wanting to do. It's, uh, I mean... Nonsense. What was the other thing we were going to talk about? CCTV. CCTV. That's something we can all agree on. Um, we're getting a lot of it. Uh, they're saying they're rolling it out after this weekend across the student area where yeah. it can sort of look into your flats. Why are they waiting until after the most largest drunken weekend? I don't know. If that's what it's the for. Last free pass. It's sort of, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Get it all out this <laughs> the weekend, last weekend, guys. You can drink. Yeah. And then uh, uh, from now on, we'll be watching. Yeah, well, yeah. or smoke weed because really, <laughs> realistically, we all know that's what the CCTV is like. You drinking, they're not going to do anything about it unless you start smashing shit. Yeah. Um, if you're harm minimizing with alternative, safer substances, that is a no no. Uh, that could hurt the profits of Sir Alcohol Merchant such-and-such and and all his mates Um, yeah what's what's the vibe Uh, I mean I saw today that you know the OUSA president good on her saying some students are uncomfortable with this not very forcefully but at least she's saying something I mean they must have done a press release or if they contacted her for comment she you know she said kind of the right thing Um, but She's criticised the consultation process. Yeah, which is obviously... And then the university farcically comes back saying, oh, well, you know, so the referendum was 51 against 49-4. First of all, very low turnout, you know, for that (laughs) referendum. But let's just say that that's representative. The anti's still won. Then they're saying, oh, the more detailed consultation process where only 80 people actually gave feedback instead of just a couple of thousand out of a university population of Mm -hmm. tens of thousands. Um, That's much more meaningful, and 65% (laughs) of them wanted it. You know, like, we went and encouraged these people to say how good it would make them feel. Just like Campus Watch, I mean, the university has been pushing shit uphill. We don't, you know, we haven't forgotten uh, amongst... OUSA and the student body of when the cops came in and bashed up the students occupying the registry against fees. Haven't forgotten, you know, the undercover operations against the 420s. The police were supposed to be persona non grata on campus, and, uh, you know, the university just sort of gave them the keys, you know, built them an office, built them a CCTV network, and now they've got this sort of uh, panopticon watching over all of us, totally against our will. The consultation process was uh, deliberately inadequate by design from the very get-go because, you know, over 10 years ago when I was meeting with the proctor during the the 420 sagas, I saw a spiral-bound report on his desk 
that I paged through when he was away from the office for a moment that had the exact same map of the CCTV that they are now implementing as an already completed plan in 2007. And basically, they've just been waiting for the right moments to incrementally sort of drip it in. Um, What was the 420 saga? uh, Oh, just when the... um, when Campus Watch was first brought in, mm. uh, basically they tried to move the long-time cannabis protesting club on, and we told them that they didn't have any authority because they were just security guards and they couldn't do anything about it. That was before the Code of Conduct existed, yeah. Yeah. so it was after that that the university then had to try to bring in the Code of Conduct again against the will of the students because... Basically, they had done this whole campus watch thing, and it had no teeth. And the moment they tried to do something, the students told them to, you know, f off. So that was very hilarious, and and that was kind of captured by the media because it was kind of a, a interesting situation. And when that didn't work, uh, the university actually colluded with the police to have five undercovers enrolled as students for a semester, sort of surveilling the student political club and going to lectures listening to lecturers political opinions and um, when that was actually exposed that was a big scandal through the tertiary education union because the professors didn't want to be surveilled for political purposes by the police uh, because of students free speech they thought that was wrong and uh, against the spirit of the university so of course the university tried to cover that up but Thankfully, it was the dawn of the YouTube era, and um, you know we had plenty of our own footage to prove that case. Um, yeah, that's probably the briefest Damn, description of that. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, uh, actually, you can look it up on Wikipedia under the um, search term "the Narchaeology Incident," uh, because there was a uh, a class. There was a poster for a class that went up on the notice boards av- advertising Narchaeology 101: How to Spot a Narc. And it was showing all the undercovers <laughs> in their various <laughs> positions throughout the university. And it even became a TUI ad on the side of Leaf Liquor that said, I'm taking Narchaeology 101. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, <laughs> a little bit of history. That was 10 years ago. Uh,